Welcome to the Baby Tribe. I'm Katie Mugan from NursingMama.ie, a paediatric and public health nurse and a lactation consultant with over 20 years experience. And I'm Afif Al-Kafash, a neonatologist and paediatrician and a lactation consultant with over 20 years experience in newborn care. And together, we are your hosts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. Now, Katie, we are going to be starting a three-part series on fussy babies, irritable babies, and babies that run into difficulty in terms of feeding over the first few weeks after delivery. And I think this is a very important topic worth talking about because it affects, I think, the majority of babies that we come across during our day-to-day practice. Absolutely. And I think this kind of nearly follows on even from, I think, our episode two, where we spoke about new normal newborn behaviours, what's normal versus when there is an issue. So here we're going to tackle a little bit about fussy baby and what we can we do to improve that. Yes, we're going to break it down into three broad topics that we are going to discuss over the next three episodes. So today we'll be discussing colic. Next week, we will be discussing reflux. And then the week after, we'll be talking about cow milk protein allergy. Yes, Afif, um, I am really interested in these topics and I often find that these can overlap between colic and reflux. A lot of the symptoms can be quite similar and CMPI, CMPA, cow's milk protein allergies uh, come into effect here as well. So we're going to break it down over the next three weeks. So stay tuned. Yeah. And I think the point that you make is very important. There is a lot of overlap in the symptoms between babies and sometimes it can be hard to figure out what is the main issue that needs addressing because they all need to be addressed in slightly different ways. And that's what we're hoping to talk about over the next three weeks. So let's jump right in. So our topic today is colic. So what is colic? Well, colic is a condition that affects babies usually over the first few months of life. You usually find babies that have persistent, excessive crying and fussiness, and that often starts suddenly and can end suddenly. It usually occurs late in the afternoon or the evenings. And the thing to emphasize here is a lot of the time these episodes are trivialized, but it's important to recognize that they can take their toll on the caregivers. Throughout those episodes, babies continue to gain weight well. And as a result, a lot of the time the diagnosis can be challenging and the advice that parents are being given can be conflicting. These symptoms should be acknowledged by medical professionals and parents should be supported when they're going through really tough times because I can definitely say baby with colic can be one of the hardest things to deal with for parents. So how common is it? Well, I suppose due to differing definitions of infantile colic, um, the prevalence actually reported within the literature can vary widely between 10% and 60%. I suppose what we can take from that is that it's very, very common. The incidence would be similar between males and females, breastfed and formula fed infants, and also full uh, term and premature infants. And generally speaking, by three months, colic is generally resolved. It's important to emphasise that it can be as common in breastfed as well as formula fed babies. I sometimes see the perception that colic doesn't tend to happen in breastfed babies. And often parents come to me quite concerned about colic symptoms in infants that are breastfed. So it's important to emphasise that we do see it in babies that are breastfed as commonly as formula-fed babies. Yeah, and I do agree. Like when we look at the look at colic, it's about looking at what's causing these symptoms. So Afif, let us know, what do you think? So we know that there are some factors that can contribute to colic, but it's important to emphasise that none of those things have been found to have a actually strong link. The reason I think that that is the case is because I think it is multifactorial and a lot of different things can contribute to a baby developing colic. 
For example, it can be attributed to babies overfeeding or underfeeding. It could be attributed to feeding technique with infrequent winding or some air swallowing, regardless of the, of the feeding method. There could be secondary to altered gut microbiome when we spoke about the microbiome in previous episodes. And there are some studies demonstrating that in infants with colic, there is more E. coli and Klebsiella in their gut as opposed to lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. So these are the good bacteria that promote good gut health. There are some other biological factors that we know are associated with colic. Those include maternal smoking during the antenatal period and even in the kind of short postnatal period after that. Addressing the psychological factors associated with early parenthood is an important part of addressing colic. So babies with colic usually have a typical way of crying. So Katie, what is a colicky cry? So it's where a baby will startle uh, just out of nowhere with a very sharp piercing cry. They can become quite stiff in their appearance. The legs can be raised up to their tummies. The arms can be straightened out. They can go quite flushed in colour um, and quite upset. They can also have a distension. That's the big swollen little bellies and they can be very different to console. Because of the sudden nature of the symptoms and the kind of high pitched cry that can that babies do when they are experiencing colic, it can be a very stressful time for parents. They often feel that there is something seriously wrong with my baby. Why can't I console them? Why can't I comfort them? It can be very stressful and challenging. And I think that is why it's important to also mention red flags and talk about things that may prompt you to seek help from healthcare professionals a little bit sooner. The thing to emphasize is by and large, colic is a self-limiting condition. It does pass and it's important to emphasize to parents that although it may seem that this will go on forever, it will eventually pass usually by three to four months of age in most babies. So what are the red flags to look for in babies that are experiencing colic? Well, if you feel that your baby is pale or lethargic, not really finishing feeds, taking a lot of time to finish feeds, that's an important thing to note. And that's an important thing to prompt you to bring your baby to a healthcare professional to check them out and make sure they don't have infection. Of course, if you also find out that your baby has broken out in a rash, especially a non-blanching rash that we usually describe, that's an important thing to watch out for as well. If your baby's not gaining weight during these colicky periods, then it may be an issue with failure to thrive or not taking enough milk. And again, the crying may be a result of actually reduced fluid intake rather than anything else. And of course, things like bilious vomiting, so green color in the vomit, bloody vomiting or persistent projectile vomiting are things to watch out for. If the baby's stool has evidence of blood, evidence of mucus, that this may point out to other things that need to be looked at. So these are the red flags that you should be watching out for. If your baby doesn't have any of those red flags, but has this kind of high pitched cry that comes on suddenly, goes away suddenly, usually happens in the evening time, that it's most likely to be colic rather than anything else. Having said that, if you are ever worried about your baby, it is important that you seek medical advice at the earliest time possible so that you can address your concerns in a timely manner. I agree totally. And I really do think that when a parent goes to seek help from a healthcare professional, it's about them being met with an empathetic ear that somebody takes time to listen. 
Um, I think it's really important that parents are reassured that they're doing their best, that they can for their baby at that time. Educating uh, the parents that colic generally is not caused by an underlying pathological cause and looking at the symptoms and seeing how we can improve that for both parents and baby. Yes, Katie, I think you hit the nail on the head here. And one thing I suppose we should do is also acknowledge that this can be a very difficult time. It can be a time that is filled with frustration, exhaustion, anger, feeling of helplessness. Parents can sometimes find it difficult to connect emotionally with a baby that is excessively crying nonstop at night. And we are here to tell you that it is okay and it is normal to have those reactions. It does not make you a bad parent. You should not feel guilty about them. You're going through a very, very difficult time. And this is the time to actually seek help because acknowledging these feelings and telling parents that they are okay, I think is the first part of dealing with the issue. And whenever you can, try and ensure that you can take safe breaks away from your baby and have your baby be cared for or minded, even for a short period of time with somebody that you can trust so that you can take a break from from those kind of colicky sessions if you feel that you need to. And that is okay to do as well. So I suppose the question on the minds of all parents is, can we do anything about it? Absolutely. Like, as I say to all parents, colic is just a symptom of an issue. So let's address the possibilities of how we can improve that. So when we're talking about feeding, I when we're talking about the bottle fed infant, I look at the volumes the baby is taking, look at the position the baby is in. So often I would either say in a seated position doing the paste feeding technique or what can work really, really nicely with these infants are is the um, elevated sideline position. Um, looking at when you are feeding, don't look at large volumes, but look at smaller volumes and taking a break uh, to wind the baby um, in between feeds. Now, I have to say that when your baby starts out feeding, if they are very hungry, if you keep removing the bottle very quickly in order to wind and you're only giving them five to 10 mils, then the more upset they get because they're getting really angry at you saying, I want this bottle, give it back to me then you're going to lead to a baby taking more air in while they're crying than if you had have let them just take the very first initial amount of feed and then take a break. So maybe after every one to two ounces, um, take a break, but not after every five to 10 mils, which can help. Uh, when you're making up your formula, if you're using powdered formula, just ensure that you're not shaking the bottle too uh, too much while you've made it up, as this can incorporate an awful lot more air into the formula. Look at the feeding. So if your baby is gulping the feed down too quickly, then this can often be due to the very fast flowing teat. Use a slow flowing teat to allow the baby to regulate the pace of the feed much better. Can I interject a little bit and can you expand a bit on paste bottle feeding? And I'll tell you why I'm asking this question. I once asked a mother to look up paste bottle feeding and I remember her coming back to me saying, I looked, I tried finding the space that you wanted me to feed my baby, but I could never actually find it. And I think we need to emphasize that we talk about P-A-C-E-D, not P-A-S-T-E. So what is paste bottle feeding? So using a paste feeding technique allows the baby to regulate their feeds an awful lot better. So imagine this, if your baby um, is in a more seated position, that when you put the bottle in the bottle teeth into the baby's mouth, you always go for the roof of the bottle, a uh, roof of the baby's mouth in order to allow the sucking reflex to kick in. When the baby um, starts sucking, then instead of having the bottle in a, a vertical position, you have it in a more horizontal. Now, by this, I just simply mean that the teeth can be full of milk 
but it is in a more horizontal position. So it allows the baby to regulate the pace of the feet instead of the traditional hold where the baby would be lying back in your arm and the bottle would be in a vertical position where the flow is extremely fast and babies can gulp quite quickly and they're not able to control it as effectively. Otherwise, if you do the elevated side lying position where so if you can picture this with your baby lying on their side with their bums attached to your abdomen and you supporting under their head with a bottle in the horizontal position, again, this allows babies to regulate the pace of the feed much better. Um, this prevents a baby overfeeding as well. So taking in too large a volume too quickly um, and allows them to slow down on their feeds. So last week we discussed the different kinds of formulas that are available on the market. And I know that there is a role for maybe comfort formulas in certain situations in infants that are experiencing colic. So can you tell us about that? Yes, Afif, I think we both agreed in our last episode that we do agree with the role of comfort formulas. And although there's not a huge amount of evidence-based research to support it, we have anecdotally seen in practice that they can actually benefit the infant at trial. I would always recommend that you link in with your healthcare provider um, before you make a change. Um, and just be aware that if you are using a comfort formula, you may need to go up a size in the teeth and just be prepared for green poos. They are quite common. Yeah. So I think the bottom line is with comfort formula is maybe try the feeding techniques that Katie described before you think about using it and always consult with a healthcare provider before you start using comfort formula. Yes. Uh, one last thing just with regards to bottle feeding is Sometimes we do see that parents are having their babies on more four hourly feeding schedules. This means they are taking in larger volumes and spacing them out an awful lot uh, more. It would be more beneficial if you think about it, if we're break, if we're digesting much to improve digestion is to take in smaller volumes more frequently. So I wouldn't be going past three hourly feeds with regards to a baby that is suffering with digestive symptoms. If you think about the size of the baby's stomach, they're the size of their clenched fists. Sometimes babies cannot handle three or four ounces at a time. They may need to take two ounces a little bit more frequently during the day. And I often find that this may help alleviate some of the colic symptoms later on in the day. So we also said that colic can affect breastfeeding infants as well. So Katie, are there any tips that you advise mothers that are breastfeeding on how to reduce colic? Absolutely. Okay, so with the breastfed infant, I always recommend an assessment with an IBCLC as oftentimes it can be just a simple tweak to position can lead to a much better attachment at the breast, which can lead to obviously the baby being able to effectively remove milk from the breast, taking in less air. They can also control the uh, flow of milk much easier. Sometimes we do see mothers with a very large supply or oversupply, we can see colicky symptoms in these infants. So it's about addressing the oversupply issue with the mother, which can therefore improve the digestion of the baby. When we look at, sometimes you'll hear people talking about maternal diet. Now, I'm always hesitant on this because uh, I don't know if there's a huge amount of research to fully support this. Um, I suppose when we talk about excessive caffeine, um, it is recommended that a mother can have up to 300 milligrams of caffeine in a day, but that is subjective to each individual mother. As in, for you, you may be able to take two cups of coffee and have no effect at all um, and your baby can be absolutely fine. For me, I may be only able to have one cup of coffee before I feel jittery. So I think it depends on every mother and every baby. We do talk a little bit about dairy intake and that's more related to see a, a cow's milk protein intolerances and allergies, but we're going to discuss that again at a later date. 
Um, I think the biggest thing is actually looking and addressing a feeding, uh, doing a full feeding assessment, whether we are speaking about either a bottle fed infant or a breastfed infant, because this is where a lot of the issues lie when it comes to the colicky infant. Can I ask you, Katie, about the advice to avoid switching to the second breast too quickly? Because hind milk contains more fat and as a result, it may slow down stomach emptying and lactose is released much more slowly and it may help the baby digest better and it may help alleviate colicky symptoms. Do you have an opinion on that? So this is very dependent on each individual mom and baby. For me, I think you need to look at the baby at the breast to see them taking uh, to transferring the milk. For moms that have very large milk supplies, that baby may not need to go to a second breast. They may have enough to uh, take in in that feeding session just from one individual breast. Switching breast comes down to a baby at the breast and this is what I think parents need to be taught about. If the baby is getting fussy or agitated, if they are falling asleep at the breast, if the baby is uh, sucking more than six or seven sucks before you hear the swallow, then I always recommend switching breasts. I would, when people, when we talk about switching too early, then people get focused on time and they say, well, my baby has to stay in the breast for 10 to 15 minutes before I change over. When that's not right for every parent. It really does come down to the individual mother and baby. I try to get parents to focus on them actually transferring milk and listening to the sucks and swallows. If your baby's sucking and swallowing and they're taking plenty in, then you wait until the baby's kind of telling you actually it's time to move over. And that can be indicated by a baby getting agitated, fussy, bobbing on and off the breast, or simply that they're sucking and sucking and sucking and we're not hearing any swallows following up. Yeah. Okay. And then moving on from that, I think we should mention also soothing techniques that some parents should try. But I suppose in my clinical practice, I think by the time they get to me or to you, Katie, they've already tried all of those soothing techniques before they present to us. But they're worthy of mention. Taking your baby for a ride in a car or a stroller can sometimes help calm them down. Gentle rocking, and I emphasize the word gentle, rocking the baby from side to side can also provide some comfort. Sometimes a warm bath can help, rubbing the baby's tummy gently and providing white noise in the background. These are all things that parents should also try. When it comes to the breastfed infant, I just want to make one point in that if your baby's unsettled or agitated, what I'm often finding and I'm finding more frequently is parents believing that now they're starting to exhibit colicky symptoms when in fact they're actually trying to tell the parent I'm actually hungry put me back on the breast. So for the breastfed infant the first port of call with any baby should be to offer the baby uh, offer the breast again. This often again relaxes the baby and calms the baby very well which then if they are feeling a little gassy you'll often find it can trigger the gut and they actually end up having a dirty nappy while attached to the breast and then they end up soothing a lot easier. Like you said I think motion can play a big part of it. And when people say I get in the car and I go out, I'm like, whatever works, if that helps calm things down. And sometimes it also calms the parent as well, because in moments of crisis, when we are struggling and in a nearly fight and flight response, we don't even realise how tense we can be. So as you say, the gentle rocking, I mean, it is very normal that if you're rocking nonstop, you can sometimes get a lot more um, ferocious in your rocking without even realising it. And that can lead to a baby getting a little bit more unsettled because they realise then, well, actually, I don't feel too relaxed at this moment in time. And that can lead to symptoms exacerbating rather than settling them down. Okay. What about pacifiers? I always say this, I am not anti-pacifier. Um, uh, soothers, also commonly known as, I think it is very dependent on uh, parental choice. 
Um, I think they can work very well. But when we talk about the breastfed infant, I think it's just really important that parents are, they have kind of gotten their breastfeeding established. And by that, I just mean that things are going well, that they understand and they can acknowledge when the baby's showing hunger cues um, and that they understand that when you're using a soother, if it is the case that the baby's on the breast and they're just doing their little flutter sucks at the very end of a feed and they're looking for that comfort and you're feeling a little bit touched out or you just want to take them simply off the breast but keeping them nice and calm, then using a soother in place of that can calm them right back down. A soother should not be used to prolong times between feeds and that if a soother falls out and your baby is asleep, then you don't replace the soother back in the mouth if they wake up or become unsettled or agitated. That's when we offer the breast next. But in the circumstance where you've got a baby that's heightened, very unsettled, a soother can sometimes calm them right back down. So, yes, I think it's parental choice if a parent wants to use one. Yeah, I also want to mention the use of probiotics in babies with colic. There is recent evidence suggests that probiotic containing the bacteria Lactobacillus reuteri, that's R-E-U-T-E-R-I. Studies have shown that this may reduce the duration of crying in the evening by up to an hour. So it's always worth trying out probiotics containing this um, good bacteria called Lactobacillus reuteri. And this brings us to things that are usually not recommended for babies with colic. I think using soy protein formulas or goat's milk formulas have no evidence to demonstrate um, that they do anything for babies with colic. Also, thickened hungry baby formulas, I wouldn't recommend. We spoke about the possible role for comfort formula, but just to emphasize that hungry baby formulas that predominantly have casein in them usually, in my experience, cause more problems than they solve. You should never discontinue breastfeeding in babies that are colicky. And I still hear today if if people being recommended to trial an alternative or if breastfeeding, if, you know, they blame breastfeeding instead of looking at the cause and see what's going on. A lot of parents use anti-colic drops without mentioning brand names, things that contain semethicone or lactase. In my experience, they have varying effects. Some parents find them helpful. Most parents don't. So generally, in my practice, I do not recommend semethicone preparations or lactase containing preparations. Yeah, like I don't find them any benefit at all. But sometimes I think for parents, it's they feel like they're doing something by trialing them. And I say, look, give it a go if you really want. I generally don't see any major improvement by the use of them. But I will say they won't actually do any harm to your child. Yeah. And things like sucrose, glucose preparations, gripe water have no evidence base for treatment of colic. And again, I would avoid any herbal or homeopathic treatments that you give to your baby to try and improve the symptoms of colic. Again, there's no evidence base for those and some herbal preparations. Yeah, I'd always be a little bit cautious about giving anything to a small infant or child that's homeopathic. And I'm very much for homeopathic remedies, but not um, solutions or that to be given because we just don't know what's inside them. I would also, and you may fight me on this, Katie, I may caution against manipulative therapies and acupuncture in babies with colic because... So I'll jump in here and I'm going to say, no, don't agree on this one. I actually, although there's no... Uh, evidence in literature regarding, I call it a kind of body work. So seeing a pediatric osteopath, um, there is no major, I suppose, literature to support the benefit of them. However, anecdotally, we do see as lactation consultants 
um, we do see an improvement in symptoms, um, particularly babies that are born maybe via C-section um, because they're often pulled out with force. Babies that have a very rapid delivery or maybe they've had a very prolonged delivery, a forceps baby, a baby born by forceps or by a vacuum. We see in these babies that they can have a little bit more tension in the body and like when I see and I, I look at a baby and I do an assessment, I do always look and I turn them around. I do the full uh, top to toe. But you'll often find in these babies, they can have a little tension. So if you look, they'll have a high head tilt to the side. You'll often find that they'll have a head prefer side preference, which is quite common in, um, you know, when babies that are like from even seen as early on as 32 weeks in the womb. And this can definitely have an impact on latching and attachment, but also on the baby themselves and their digestive system. So like when we talk about body work, it is basically somebody putting it like their finger uh, tip on a body part. It should not cause any pain whatsoever and no significant manipulation. And I think that's the one thing that we can agree on. Just make sure there are no forceful manipulations, especially of the neck and things like that. I would usually refer babies with neck tilts and things like that to physiotherapy. Yeah, I think they have their place, but I'll still stand by the body working in with it. One thing that I hope that we both agree on is plastic tubes up baby's butts. As a paediatric nurse, I'm horrified by these and I still see them advertised on. They actually they came up on my Instagram feed a few there a while back and I was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe these are being sold and they're kind of putting them out there as safe. Nothing should be put in to a baby's bottom, the same as nothing smaller than your elbow should go into anyone's ear. The same thing goes for the baby's bottom. Absolutely. I think they are pitched as helping to relieve gas. There is no evidence base behind that. And I would really urge parents not to use them. And just, I suppose, lastly, just to, I suppose it's just about, uh, being aware of normal infant behavior, especially when it comes to colic, because sometimes I think we like there's infant dyskesia, you know, a fief which is often called as baby grunting syndrome, where we often see it particularly in the evenings or the night settings where you put your baby down, they grunt hugely, they give out, the legs are up uh, to their chests, they can cry for periods of time and it looks like the baby's constipated. And this can go on and you'll do all your comfort techniques and then suddenly they'll do a dirty nappy or they'll pass wind and the dirty nappy is runny, nice and smooth, the same consistency as you would expect. Um, and parents often worry there's something wrong. But digestively, like the newborn digestive system is immature. It takes time for it to settle and to establish. So this is normal, again, considered normal behaviour and it generally passes up to about two months of age. So I suppose sometimes we can read into things when maybe they're not, that isn't the case. Great. I think that was a great roundup of everything to do with colic. Now, before we move on to our next segment, a quick word from our sponsors. When choosing your antenatal care journey, you need a team that you can trust. Here at Evie, we offer personalised, multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment, ranging from consultant care high-end scanning and prenatal testing to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. Our team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynaecology and paediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact us today on 01 293 3984 or visit our website at evie.ie for more information. Evie, a game changer in antenatal care. And we're back just in time for Afif's nerdy segment. So hit us, Afif. So for my weekly nerdy segment, I came across a paper published in the BMJ in February of this year, 
that examined the claims that formula companies make. So these are the claims that you see on the packaging of formula companies that tell you that they do one thing or another. For example, phrases like help support the development of brain or eyes or the nervous system or strengthen supports a baby's healthy immune system, help support growth and development easy to digest, stimulates growth of a healthy intestinal bacteria, strengthen and develops bones, promotes softer stool consistency, reduces the risk of allergy development, dietary management of colic, dietary management of regurgitation, improves absorption and or digestion and dietary management of constipation. So all of these claims that the formula companies make, is there a basis for them? Well, this group of researchers examined over 700 formula products from about 15 countries and they came up with the following. This was an international survey of about 15 countries and they found that most of these formula products carried at least one claim. And interestingly, in countries like Australia, formula companies generally had about one to two claims. But in the US, these formula companies had up to four claims of benefit on on, on their packaging. And what they actually found was they attribute a lot of these claims to similar ingredients. So for example, they pinpoint an ingredient in the formula, such as long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids or prebiotics, probiotics, or the hydrolyzed protein components or vitamins. And they claim that one of these ingredients is responsible for a variety of those claims and vice versa. They also had a lot of ingredients responsible for one of two claims, meaning that they will stick everything under the claim that it helps improve the immune system. So when they digged into whether these claims had references, they actually found that three quarters, KT, three quarters of the products did not provide a reference to support that. And when one of the claims cited scientific evidence, the majority of that evidence was not clinical trials. They were either opinion pieces or they were poorly conducted observational studies. And of the minority of claims that were backed up by randomized controlled trials, these are the trials that we actually use to test the effectiveness of medications or whatever, the majority of those were actually funded and supported by the formula companies themselves. So there was a huge degree of bias in them. And a lot of the claims made by formula companies to try and separate out their product over other products are unsubstantiated. So why am I bringing this up? Am I criticizing the use of formula? Absolutely not. What I am highlighting here is the importance of using formula according to recommendations by healthcare providers. And we did go through this extensively in our previous episode on formula milk. And just to kind of re-emphasize the importance of sticking to the number one formula throughout the first year of age and then switching to full fat cow's milk after a year of age. And if there is the need to use any of the comfort range or any of the other products that might be important, that you need to talk to a healthcare provider before you do that. I would avoid using number two and I would certainly avoid using the toddler milks as well. Yeah, that's really interesting, Afif. And I think that's huge. It's a great way for them to market additional formulas. And they are really targeting vulnerable parents when somebody just doesn't know what else to do. They've got a crying baby at home. They're going to jump in and say, oh my God, this is specific for colic. We're going to give it a go. Yeah. So this is... um, my nerdy segment of the week. Now, moving on to the final segment of this episode is a question from our listeners. So we've had a lot of questions about crying 
from a variety of our listeners, and I'm going to summarize them into one question for you, Katie. When is crying not due to colic and therefore something to worry about? So crying, as we know, is a baby's way of communicating to us that they're not happy about something. If it happens uh, very sporadically and no matter what you do, the baby will not settle. It's a very high pitched cry. If you see any colour change, then it's always warranted to have your baby reviewed and to ensure that there's nothing medically underlying. If your baby is uh, happy for the majority of uh, the rest of the day, but with one period of crying uh, generally seen in the evening time, you see it for more than it becomes more of a routine where you nearly set your time, your clock by it and you say, here we go, it's kicking off. Then we know it's probably more likely down to colic. And then it's about addressing symptoms um, and symptom management to help you um, help your little one get through these tough times. Yeah, and it's never easy. And I'd like to kind of leave with this final message is don't feel that the onus is on you, the parent, to try and figure out whether there is a problem with your baby's persistent crying. If you are ever in this situation, please seek medical advice and hopefully you will find help at hand to help you through the situation. Totally agree, Afif. I think support is key, particularly with these little fussy little ones. Well, we've come to the end of this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time where we talk about gastroesophageal reflux. So see you next Tuesday, Katie. See you next Tuesday, Thief. <laughs>